Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jason Cherry on April 25th, Lord's Day Service. Alright guys, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together this morning. We pray that as we receive this teaching that we would be edified. We pray that as we uh, participate in the worship service this morning that we would be renewed in our joy in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is the third week of a little three-week series we're doing that will probably eventually become a membership class. Um, So what we've been doing, two weeks ago, Larson talked a little bit about the history of TRC and our four distinctives. Uh, Last week, Matt Carpenter taught uh, on our doctrine, uh, just kind of focusing on some of the distinctive things. In particular, we are Trinity Reformed Church, and so what does that mean? Uh, And he talked, starting with mainly focusing on the five solas of the Reformation, that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, unto the glory of God alone. And this morning we're going to talk about three things. First, we're going to talk about denominations. Second, we're going to talk about Presbyterianism, because we are a Presbyterian church. Kind of explain what that means. And third, if there's time, we're going to talk just a little bit about church membership. And so... Two weeks ago when Larson taught, he talked a little bit about the CREC. That's the denomination that we're affiliated with. That stands for the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. And that is a denomination. And so we are a church that's affiliated with a denomination. And in my experience with people today, that's like cussing. That is a bad word to say that we are a church affiliated with a denomination. And so it is the case we belong to a denomination, and that may be a problem for some in the year 2021, based on how many people over the years have expressed relief to me about the fact that they belong to a non-denominational church. And so they're free from church politics, uh, the potential hurt that comes with denominational life, and all of this. And so since today there's seemingly 10,000 objections to a church that is affiliated with a denomination, we find ourselves needing to answer the question, why belong to a church that's even affiliated with a denomination in the first place? I mean, haven't we proven through hundreds of years that that's that's not the way to go? Haven't we proven that these non-denominational churches uh, have a little bit more figured out? And so, vast numbers of faithful 21st century Christians today have dispensed with denominational Christianity. And I've heard this speech from a lot of different people, and and, and the the excuses or the reasons that they're suspicious of denominational churches are many. Uh, Maybe it's the claim that denominational churches are too buttoned up, they're too stiff, they're too old. Uh, Maybe it's the claim that, you know, how can those denominational churches really know what's relevant to young people? Because, you know, when those songs were written, when those liturgies were established, you know, TikTok hadn't even been invented yet. How do they know how to be relevant? 
Uh, maybe it's just the, the, the plain fact, and this is pretty common in my experience, that, that a person's been hurt by the church, and that church happened to be a church affiliated with the denomination. And so in their mind, they associate, I was hurt in this church that's affiliated with this denomination, therefore denominational churches hurt people, or they're more prone to hurt people. And of course, those are just a few of the reasons people might be shy about joining a church affiliated with a denomination. And we're happy to acknowledge there is some truth in each of those claims. And we're happy to acknowledge that blind loyalty to a denomination is destructive to Christian faithfulness. And so back to our question, why belong to a church affiliated with a denomination, especially when there's so many alternatives? And the reason is, is we've got, if you're choosing a church, you've got a choice. You're either going to join a church that's affiliated with a denomination, or you're going to join one that's not. It's called non-denominational. Okay, so let's just compare what that means. To denominate something is to name it. To non-denominate something is to not name it. That's what the language means. And so, each church has convictions. The denominational church has convictions. The non-denominational church has convictions. Even if their conviction is, we have no convictions. All right, there's your conviction. So they both have convictions. The difference between, and we're generalizing, of course, but the difference between the typical denominational church and the typical non-denominational church, if they're living up to that billing, is that the denominational church is putting their convictions out in front in public for everyone to see. And so, a denomination is not, as many modern Christians suppose, an institution with 50 ways of doing ministry, all of them bad. That's not the case. It's not the default that denominational churches are all bad and are necessarily going to hurt people or cause problems. And so maybe we should understand what it even means when we say a denomination. What is a denomination? Well, denominations are just church institutions with certain personalities, certain characteristics, certain histories, and certain priorities. Denominations have a size, a standing, and an organization. And the bulk of churches that are affiliated with that denomination publicly acknowledge the denomination's confession of faith. And so <clears throat> we don't dispute that denominations bring many problems. We argue, however, that belonging to a healthy church that's affiliated with a healthy denomination is not something to be avoided like the plague. It is a reasonable option for Christians looking for a church to join a church that's associated with a denomination. And it's not that denominations claim to be the ground of unity. I've heard that argument a lot against denominationalism. It's not the case that denominations claim to be the ground of unity. Christ is the ground of unity. Denominations aren't claiming to replace Christ in that way. It's that denominations denominate. They announce, they name what they believe. They announce with conviction precisely what they are grounded in. 1 Timothy 3.15 talks about how the church's job is to pillar and buttress the truth. And so to denominate something publicly is a proper way to pillar and buttress the truth. 
And so a denominational church is nothing more than a church with a clearly articulated definition. Now, ironically, there are some denominational churches who don't clearly define what they are. And ironically, there are some non-denominational churches that do clearly define what they are. But we're talking about the general truth here. And so we think that a church that announces with conviction what they are does offer better prospects in this world that's so greatly opposed to the church in this moment, that that church, which is announcing clearly the definition of what they are, stands a better chance in, in contrast with the church of diminishing definition. And when you look at the way truth is passed on from one generation to the next, it is not the case, and this is one of the lies that, that's common in the modern church world, it is not the case that the church is handed down from one generation to the next just by doing life together. Doing life together is really important, but visions of Christian truth are also preserved through institutions, covenants, and church constitutions. And that's not as fun as doing life together, but it is necessary if we're going to pass down the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude 3 talks about it. And so, yes, we're, we're, we belong to a church that's affiliated with a denomination. Uh, that's not like the most important thing about us, uh, but, but we also want to make sure that doesn't run people off because it's not popular to be affiliated with a denomination anymore. And our thought is, what if we raise the next generation to see Christian institutions not as backbiting church politics, but as something beautiful? What if living as a Christian once again meant inhabiting a durable organization. I mean, after all, what is the Christian religion if it isn't an eternal binding to Christ the Lord? That's what the word religion means. The word religion means binding. And so we want to be very religious because we want to be binded to Christ and the body of Christ. And so we aren't claiming that if you are a member of a non-denominational church, you're in sin, we are happy to acknowledge there are very fine non-denominational churches. And while we're naming things that are true, there are good denominations and bad ones. There are good churches and bad denominations. There are bad churches and good denominations. But all we're arguing is that you shouldn't be shy about joining a church affiliated with a denomination. And so, from there, we've talked about denominational things and what that means. Let's move on now and talk about church government. And I know that's exciting, so stay in your seats for a moment. But we're going to talk about church government, and in particular, we're going to talk about Presbyterianism and what that means, because we are a Presbyterian church. And so Presbyterianism is one of the three main ways to organize a church. And so in the history of the church, there's really three primary ways churches have organized themselves. And so what I want to do is I want to discuss all three and just give a basic definition of the three main types of church government, and one of those types is Presbyterianism. And so let's briefly consider the three forms of church government we've seen in the history of the church. The first that we'll mention is the Episcopalian form of government. The Episcopalian form of government. Uh, the fancy word for this is the prelacy. 
P-R-E-L-A-C-Y, the prelacy. But we'll just call it the Episcopalian form of church government. And so they get their name from the Greek word episkopos, which is translated as overseer, or the, the KJV translates episkopos as bishop. And so the Episcopalian form of government is basically a hierarchy. It's the hierarchical form of church government. And so in the traditional Episcopalian model, on the lowest level you have a priest. Sometimes they call that person a rector. And so that priest is over an individual congregation. He might have an assistant. Uh, that person would be called a vicar. And then above the priest is a bishop. And so the bishop is over a diocese of multiple congregations. And then above the bishop is the archbishop. And so the archbishop is overseeing the work of the bishops. And so you have this clearly defined hierarchy. And the Episcopal Church and the Roman Catholic Church operate with this hierarchical form of government. And so like when you look at the Roman Catholic Church, the hierarchy from bottom to top is priest, then uh, bishop, then archbishop, then cardinal, then pope. And so it's a clearly defined hierarchy. And I imagine there, there's some Episcopalians here who are about to kick me in the shin. But when you look at the biblical argument of Episcopalian government, according to everything I've read, a lot of them will admit there isn't much of a biblical argument. And again, I know I'm probably misrepresenting that. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's many books written defending this biblically. I, I haven't found them. And the ones I have read basically admit that this is more of, a, of a, something that evolved in church history. And they kind of start with that explanation of this type of government. And so they'll basically say that you know, this hierarchy is kind of the natural outgrowth of the development of the New Testament church over time. They argue that in the early church you had these groups of elders, and so those groups of elders would elect a bishop, and that bishop gained a permanent authority regionally over time. And so they argue that in the early church you have this kind of informal episcopate that springs up, and because it's springing up out of the early church, it's legitimate. Now, when you start looking at the biblical arguments, uh, I think there's two they could make. One, and this is the one I've, I have heard, is they point to Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. You have the, the group of apostles and elders who are meeting together to decide the issue of whether, what to do with the Gentiles. And in that scene in Acts 15, you see James almost as the leader of the meeting. And, and it seems as if you know, the, the group of elders and apostles almost default to James throughout the meeting. And so they, they point to that and they say, see, there's a hierarchy. James is above the others in this hierarchy. And then the other biblical argument is just looking at the words. When you look at the words in the New Testament describing an elder, you've got the word episkopos, which I previously mentioned. But then you have this other word, presbyteros, which is usually translated as elder. And they say those two Greek words are pointing to two different positions such that the episkopos, the bishop, is here and the presbyteros, the elder, is here. And it's a stacked hierarchy. All right, so the Episcopalian form of government. The second main form of church government in the history of the church is the congregational model. The congregational model. And so in the congregational church government, the authority rests with the congregation. The authority rests with the local congregation. And so there's really two 
defining characteristics of congregational church government, and that is autonomy and democracy. Autonomy and democracy. And so congregational churches are autonomous in that there is no authority outside that local church which bears on that local church. They are autonomous. That church exists and has full authority in and of itself without recognition of any other uh, church structure outside of that local church. And so it's autonomous, and then it's democratic. Congregational churches are democratic, basically meaning all the members of the local congregation make the decisions that guide and govern the church. And so they vote on a lot of things. Um, and, and in a typical congregational church, there's a lot of committees. Uh, and that's not supposed to be busy work. In their model, that's very consistent because they want the people having leadership. And so they put all, a lot of the people into these committees. And so just historically, if you look at the examples of church denominations that have followed the congregational model, Baptists, the Evangelical Free Church, congregational churches, some Lutheran churches are congregational, some are, some are Episcopalian, and then of course most non-denominational churches follow that basic congregational form of church government. And when you look at their biblical argument, they point to a few things. They point to how in Acts 6, the congregation was involved in the electing of deacons. They point to Acts 14.23, when it seems like the congregation is involved in the appointment of elders. They point to how the entire church sent out Barnabas in Acts 11.22. They, they point to how the entire church sent out Titus in 2 Corinthians 8.19. The entire church received Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. Uh, and then they see... Uh, they point to how the entire church eventually is involved in that Acts 15 Jerusalem Council in Acts 15:25, and so so they point to those passages and see there's a lot of there's a lot of democratic action happening on the local church level. So we've got the Episcopalian model of church government, we've got the congregational model of church government, and then we've got the Presbyterian form of church government. And so just to make sure we're crystal clear, we are a Presbyterian church, and so uh, let's define exactly what this means. So the name Presbyterian, again, comes from that Greek word presbyteros, which is translated as elder. And so Presbyterians emphasize that each church has a plurality of elders. Each church has a plurality of elders. And then most you know, there's, there's kind of different roles there. Some of those elders are ruling elders. Some are teaching elders. You see this distinction very clearly, not only in the Old Testament structure of priests, but then also in 1 Timothy 5.17, when Paul says, those who rule well uh, and teach are worthy of double honor. So, so you've got this distinction between the, the role of ruling elder and then the role of teaching elder. And so, in the Presbyterian model, the elders are elected by the people of the local church. The group of elected ruling elders is called the session. And the reason they're called the session is because they're ruling. You know, they're called ruling elders in 1 Timothy 5.17. And so, you know, like when Christ ascended to be with the Father, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, what was he seated in? Well, the, the imagery there is he's seated on the throne. Well, what does a king do? Think of the medieval world. What does the king do? He sits on his throne and rules. And so the word session just means to be seated. 
And so uh, the ruling elders are supposed to be leading and ruling the church, and so they're called the session because historically you sit in your powerful chair as you, as you lead and rule. All right, so in Presbyterianism, each local church in a region is then united to each other, and that's called a presbytery. And the presbytery usually includes representatives from each of those local churches, usually the teaching elder or the pastor, maybe some ruling elders would be included. And then some members of that presbytery are members of what's historically been called the General Assembly, what the CREC calls the council. All right, and Larson did talk about some of that two weeks ago, uh, and so I'm not going to go into tons of that unless there's just questions. Um, so what I want us to do here, okay, so we've defined the three main forms of church government in church history, the Episcopalian, the Congregational, and the Presbyterian. And so what I want us to do here is look at a few passages of Scripture and compare which of those three models check all the boxes. And so what I've got here is there's six sets of passages that bring to us a principle of how to organize church government, and we're going to see which of the three checks the box of that particular principle. So I'm going to assign some passages here, so if you don't have a Bible, you may get shamed, and it's not intentional. Um, <clears throat> so if you've got a Bible, I'm going to call on some folks to read here. Uh, Bethany, would you mind opening up to Acts chapter 6? Verses 1 through 6. Shane, do you have your uh, Bible on your phone? So I'm going to have you do Titus 1, verses 5 through 7. And Matt, if you've got the ability to hold a child and read Scripture at the same time, I'm going to have you do Acts 17, 28. Let's see. Daniel, do you have the Bible there? I'm going to have you read Acts 11, 30. Uh, Brian, would you read Acts... 14.23. Stuart, would you read 1 Timothy 4.14? Thank you. Let's see, Daniel, can you do Acts 6.6? 6? Let's see, we're not going to read all of the Acts 15 passage. That's the Jerusalem Council. We'll just kind of summarize that. So, uh, Bijan, would you read Ephesians 5.23? Right, Aaron, do you have Bible there? And Aaron, open up to 1 Peter 5.1 through 3. And I want to do this quick because we do have some other things we need to talk about here. Uh, but let's just real quickly read the passage, define the principle of organizing church government, and then see which fulfills that principle. All right, so let's start with Acts 6, 1 through 6. Bethany, if you would read that for us.
All right, good. So you see two things here in verse 3, and I know you don't all have this open in front of you, but in verse 3, to deal with the problem of serving the widow's tables, the leaders tell the congregation, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. So, so the church there is doing the job of picking. And then you see in verse 6, it says, then they set before the apostles. Well, who's they? Well, they seems to be the congregation. And then the apostles approved them. All right, and so the principle here is that leaders are chosen by the people. And if we were to be truly accurate here, it's really deacons are chosen by the people. Uh, some like to generalize that more broadly. Uh, but, but in particular, we know for sure deacons are chosen by the people in that passage. Maybe you could broaden it to say all leaders are. That's a debate point. But what you see then is which of those three forms of church government fulfilled that biblical principle. Well, the Congregationalists do, as do the Presbyterians. All right, let's move on to the next principle. So let's see, who had Titus 1, 5 through 7? Shane, go ahead and read that for us. All right, and so the reason that passage is important is because in verse 7, you see that word overseer, which is the word episkopos. And we talked earlier about how the Episcopalians handle that. They're going to say, well, that's a different, a different job than elder, and he is an overseer of even the elders, translated as bishop in the KJV. But what you actually see, I would argue, in that passage is that the job of overseer is given to the elders, and so the principle here is that elders are functioning as the overseer. And so there's another passage we can look at, Acts 17, 28. Matt, do you have it? Ah, I must have written down the wrong passage. That happens sometimes. We all understand. I just wanted you guys to know I am a mere mortal. <laughs> so um, there's another passage somewhere in God's word that, that reinforces this. But the, the point is that the principle here is that elders function as overseer. And of course, the Episcopalians are going to argue something different, but both the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians would see the elders' role as fulfilling the job of overseer. All right, next, let's look at the Acts 11.30 passage. Who had that one? Okay, Daniel, go ahead. All right, good. And then, uh, who had the Acts 14.23 passage? Brian, go ahead. All right, so the key in both of those passages is that it's elders, plural. Not one lone man, not a CEO over everyone else, but elders serve in plurality. Elders serve in plurality. That's the idea. You see this elsewhere. Titus 1.5, uh, Paul tells Titus, go and appoint elders at the churches that he's working with. And so elders are to serve in plurality. And so how, which of these three forms of church government fulfill that? Well, Episcopalian does not typically, certainly not as a rule. Uh, Presbyterianism definitely does, almost by definition, 
you know, that's what Presbyterianism is accomplishing in the local church. Congregational, uh, that's kind of iffy. It depends on what era of church history you're looking at. Historically, the answer to that has been no. In the last 20 years, a lot of Baptistic churches have started to uh, use a plurality of elders, so we should give them credit for that. Uh, but historically, congregational churches have not insisted on a plurality. All right, next, 1 Timothy 4.14. Who had that one? All right, Stuart, go ahead. All right, so this is Paul writing to Timothy, and he's kind of recounting here how Timothy came to have this role as a leader in the church, and it says that um, the council of elders laid their hands on you. And you see this happening in Acts a few times, and so we use the word, this is like ordination. They're being ordained. The laying on of hands is happening. And the key here is that elders can't appoint themselves. Elders have to be appointed by a legitimate group of elders, plural. Uh, and so, let's see, uh, the other passage here is Acts 6, 6. Who had that one? Daniel, go ahead. Okay. All right, so elders are ordained as a plurality. And, of course, that's referring to deacons there, but you're seeing the principle of how they operated in the early church when it came to instituting a church officer. All right, so which of these do that? Well, uh, certainly the Presbyterians do that. Congregationalism, some do, some don't, historically. And in the Episcopalian model, they, I guess you could say they do this. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they certainly do this in some sense, uh, even though they don't define elder exactly like a Presbyterian would. All right, now... Let's look at a couple more. And the next is this Acts 15 passage. We're not going to read this. But what you have here again is that Acts 15 Jerusalem Council passage uh, where you have the elders and apostles coming together to discuss in a formal meeting what to do about the Gentiles who are coming into the church. Should they obey the, the Old Testament law or not? You know, they're sorting out these issues. And in that meeting, you have James who appears to be um, in charge. And they defer to James in this particular meeting. And so um, the, the Episcopalians, of course, are going to point to this passage and say that James is functioning in, in this hierarchical sense above the other elders and apostles who are present at, the, um, present at the meeting. But what I think actually is going on here is you're seeing that the um, elders have the right to an appeal to another body. And, and really, you could say the, the local church has the right to an appeal. The, there's a right to appeal to an assembly of leaders, of legitimate leaders outside of the local church. They're dealing with this big issue. They don't know how to handle it. So what do they do? They reach out to the broader network in the church to come together and give a ruling, to make a decision. And so the principle here is the right to appeal to an assembly of elders outside the local church. And on the James thing, I think Presbyterians in general look at that passage and say, there's not a hierarchy being established. It's 
James functioning as a first among equals situation. You've, I mean, any meeting has to have a leader or the meeting won't, won't work. It won't be, accomplish any agenda. And so he's functioning there as a first among equals. And so having a, the right to uh, an appeal to a broader ecclesiastical bodies, uh, that is unique to Presbyterianism. All right, last principle here, looking at Ephesians 5.23. Bijan, was that you? Okay. All right. And then we'll come back and, and tie this in with the first Peter passage that Aaron's going to read. And so the idea in these passages is that the elders' function is as an under-shepherd. And in particular, they're called under-shepherd because Christ is the head of the church, the passage Bijan read. So Christ is the head of the church. He's the, you know, he's the, the shepherd in that sense. And then the elders come in as under-shepherds, serving under the authority of Christ. And so I think you see that clearly expressed in Presbyterianism, certainly Congregationals, the ones I've been around, agree to that wholeheartedly. Episcopalians, I'm really not, not sure how they look about that, think about that. And so here's six principles of how to organize church uh, and, and the government of the church and the leadership of the church. And when you look at these principles, and I know we raced through these, but when you look at these principles, you see that the Presbyterian model is the one that definitely fulfills all six and so when you look at those three forms of church government, Episcopalians distribute power top-down. Congregationalists distribute power bottom-up. Presbyterians distribute power out. And in Presbyterianism, leadership is always multiple, avoiding one-man rule. Every local church is a complete church, and the local elders are the leaders of that church, but they are then connected to other churches so that the broader assembly of churches can work together on difficult issues to adjudicate disputes and other problems that may come up in a local body where you need outside wisdom. And then, of course, that presbytery sends representatives to the general assembly that has another layer of authority and wisdom to provide. All right, so <clears throat> we've talked about denominations, and we've talked about Presbyterianism and church government, just basically giving some definitions of how Presbyterianism functions. Um, let's real quickly talk about one more thing, and then we might have time for questions, in which case, um, if it's a hard question, I'll have Larson come up here and address it. Don't ask me a question about dispensationalism on the spot with a 30-second time window. I will hurt you. All right, so next we need to talk about church membership. Church membership. And this is kind of a similar topic to uh, the denominational question because a lot of people um, that I've interacted with especially um, aren't interested in actually joining a church and becoming a member of a church. And so church membership, in some sense, is out of fashion today. 
and that's for understandable reasons. Maybe some, you know, maybe they've lived under incompetent leadership in the past or abusive leadership in the past, bad experience when they were a child, perhaps. Uh, or sometimes it's for less understandable reasons. It's just the idea that, you know, Lone Ranger Christian, I can do it better on my own, and it's just an unwillingness to submit to authority. In whatever way it happens, church membership is out of fashion today in, in many circles. And so uh, we do feel the need that we, we almost have to make a case for why should a responsible Christian be a member of a local church? I think in years gone past, that was an assumption. I don't think it's assumed as much anymore among Christians, even faithful Christians. And so let's just very quickly make a, a couple of observations that, that point out that this is, in fact, a biblical thing for you to do, to join and become a member of a local church. And we're going to look at three passages very quickly. If you want to turn with me, the first one is Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. All right, so as we get here, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, you'll probably recognize this as commonly announced as the, you know, the, 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 the passage you go to, to to resolve a dispute with, when believers have a dispute in the church. And so, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, says, this is Jesus talking, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as... Be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then he goes on. But the key here, just look at that phrase in verse 17. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And so what's assumed here? There, in Jesus, Jesus is assuming here that there is a body of people that these disputing brothers can go to. There's a body of people who've been called out by God who are living under the authority of leaders who have the authority, it then goes on to say in verse 18, to bind and loose. So this is a description of a local church here in verse 17. There's no way that you could take Jesus' words and apply it, and then in verse 17 actually go and tell it to the church if there was not a localized representation of the church that knew those people and that those people had some sort of connection to. And so the only way to obey Jesus' teaching regarding the sinful brother is to be a member of a local church. Next, flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. This is the passage that reads, familiar passage. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so some people might read this passage and think that, well, I can just attend one church or another on any given Sunday and obey this passage. 
or I can just worship in my living room and invite my neighbors over, and I can obey this passage. And I think the problem is, is that when you read what he's saying in verse 24, and especially verse 25, verse 25 implies something significantly more familiar than church hopping, and, and, and it seems to also describe something more formal and organized than the modern house church movement. It becomes significantly harder to stir up one another to love and good works, and it becomes harder to encourage one another if you're not committed to a local church under the lawful authority of a plurality of elders. And so again, just like in that Matthew 18 passage, this Hebrews 10 passage is describing a local church. And this is the sort of command that really can't be fully and properly obeyed in the fullest extent apart from a local church where there are members. And by the way, while we're mentioning the word members, do you know why we call it church members? It's because in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 31, in that beautiful passage describing the church, uh, Paul talks about how we are all members of the body of Christ with different roles, hands and feet, and all this. Remember? So we get the word members from that passage. That's why the church for thousands of years has called it church members. All right, and then last passage. Let's look at this real quickly. While you're in Hebrews, just flip over to chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And this does tie into the Hebrews 10 passage. It's the same book, same author. So Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so this passage describes the role of the people and the leaders of the local church. And the people are told in verse 17 to obey and submit to the leaders. And without membership at a local church, there is no one to obey, and there is no one to submit to. There is no way a Christian can obey this verse if they are not a member of a local church. And it then says in verse 17 that the leaders are told to watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now that is the single most weighty task of an elder. Before anyone should become an elder, they have to wrestle with that verse and with the eternal implications of it before God. And so leaders have to know exactly who it is they have to give an account for. So that means they have to account their people. How do you account your people? Well, that means literally counting the souls of those who are under their care. And the best way to do that, the most practical way to do that, is through a process of church membership, where people join a church and officially say, I'm involved with this church, I'm submitting to these leaders, and these leaders are responsible for the care of my soul. And so again, Hebrews 13, the passage just doesn't work apart from membership in a local church. And so for these reasons, we argue that every responsible Christian should venture to be a member of a local church. All right, so we've covered a lot of ground here. We've talked about denominations. We've talked about Presbyterianism. And we've talked about church membership. We've got about 15 minutes until the service starts. Let me just say a quick prayer, and then we'll, then we'll break. Heavenly Father, thank you for a chance to gather and to discuss these things together. We pray that you would instruct our hearts uh, and that in all things we would prize Christ above all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh.